Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I wanna welcome this week's guest, Sharon Rector, to our show today. Sharon is the co-founder of First Media, a multi-platform content publisher that is dedicated to the do-it-all millennial woman. Their clever life hack style videos bring in over 1.7 billion monthly views on social media and their baby first TV cable network reaches over 60 million homes in the US. Their social media brands, So Yummy, Blusher and Blossom have an average of 50 million views for every video they post on social. I guarantee that you've absolutely come across at least one of their videos in the past. Sharon truly embodies a mission of her business as an inspiring woman and mother of four young kids. I'm excited to jump into this interview and really learn more about how she's built this amazing empire and also is an incredible mother along the way. Welcome to the show, Sharon. Thank you so much for having me and uh, for such a kind intro. I appreciate it. Well, now I can only intro. disappoint. Yeah, well, I know your story. I love your energy. So I already know automatically that this will be a great one. So on the podcast, we always love to start from the beginning. You've talked so much about your life growing up in Israel and the entrepreneurial spirit of your family, especially your grandfather and father. Can you take us back to those early days and share more about how you think they've influenced the woman that you are today? I think it influenced heavily who I am today, and it's what I try to do with my own daughters. I like to think that the first meaningful conversation I ever had with my dad, that's the first one I remember, was when I was actually five. And he invited me and he said, we have to talk. And it's a serious conversation. And he sat me on his lap and he said, there's a big decision we have to make. And I'd like to weigh all the options. And I was very nervous. What's the big decision? And he said, your banks, they're getting into your hair. And I'd like to evaluate with you if we're going to put pins or we're going to cut your hair. And he had this most serious face. And we had this back and forth. And then I made the decision. I am going to put pins in my hair. And I owned it. And I give you this very childhood story because that's how I was raised. I was raised that my opinion mattered, that as a girl and as a woman, I had a voice, that my parents respected my voice, and I was part of the decision-making of the family. I always grew up knowing what we had and what we didn't have. My parents always involved us. And when I go today, let's just say if I have a deal in, with Fisher Price in East Aurora and I have to travel for three days, I will say to my daughters, you know, I'm going to East Aurora. This is why I need to miss your school trip. So let's evaluate if this is important to our family or not. And if we both agree that it's important for our family for me to go, guess what? Fisher Price said there's also a Barbie in the deal. And then I'll get them to call me and say, how's our deal going? How's our deal going? And that raises girls who feel that they are part of the decision making, that their opinion matters and empowers them. And that was just the first cases. But I've always grown up with the idea that there really is nothing I can't do. And mm -hmm. I'm, one, I'm the oldest of five. And we were blessed to have a mother who thought, who thinks we're all perfect, which every child should have an adult who thinks they're perfect. And a father who looked at you, knew exactly who you were, your faults and your strengths, and shared them with you, and then would put his time, his money, his encouragement to help you be the best that you can be without judgment. And I am eternally grateful for that. 
And there was another story that actually really stood out for me when you were younger was your dad was looking to start his own business. And I think you were maybe around seven at the time. And he really asked you in all seriousness about your opinion. Can you talk to us more about your story? Because I thought it was so fascinating. That's my second conversation I remember with my dad. And it's a true story. And I actually ended up sharing it with a friend even yesterday. When I was seven, my father decided to leave the company he was heading and go in an entrepreneurial way. And he said to me, Sharon, I want your advice. Now, I was seven. You know, I want to consult with you. And he said, here's the thing. I'm thinking of leaving. What do you think? And my answer as a seven-year-old was, what are we going to eat? And he didn't laugh. And he said, well, it's a really good question. Here's what I've saved up. Here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? Can we do this as a family? Because I need us to be able to do this as a family. And I said, Dad, I believe we could do it. So I was part of the conversation. And it goes back again to giving a child, and very importantly, a girl, the notion that her opinion matters and she is part of the decision process that later goes in life. I can give you a a different story of how my dad helped me and changed my way of thinking about diversity. Often we as women talk about the fact that we don't get a seat at the table or we have a glass ceiling. And I was once heading to a negotiation that was completely stuck. There was no way I could move it. We've tried everything. There was nothing I could do. I called my dad and I said, what do I do? And my dad said, if all else fails, use your feminine power. And I said, dad, what are you talking about? I'm your daughter. Are you pimping me out? (laughs) And he said, hell no. I mean, cry. If you cry, the room full of men will not know what to do. The power will shift and you can start again from a different place. I didn't cry. I thought it was a really interesting thing to say because we often go to a negotiation assuming we have to play by the rules of others. And we as women have different tools. One of them is I could cry. And that would be socially acceptable. Maybe you won't buy for men, but, but there's so many others. So mm-hmm. if men can go and play golf together, I can give marriage advice. So there's so many other tools. And I think of us as women as I was born as an Israeli, as I was born in London, but I'm an Israeli, I'm a woman, I'm white, I'm privileged. Everything I am is my package. My goal is not to look at what I don't have or what I could have better, but rather how do I win with the, with the, with the cards I was dealt? So that's a weird way of him to give me that advice, but it, but it was very mind-opening. Yeah, you see that theme a lot for you, actually, where, you know, whatever obstacle you've hit, you've always made it an opportunity. You've been resourceful and creative enough to kind of work around it or deal with it head on. I want to go back to your early adult life. You went to law school in Israel, but you've mentioned that it was pretty miserable. You didn't enjoy yourself. So after graduating with your degree, what were your next steps and what did you do after law school? Yes, I'm Jewish Polish. We could choose between being a lawyer and a doctor. Yeah, <laughs> those are the only options, right? Those are the options, not by my parents, but generally society. So I went to law school. Now, I am heavily dyslexic. I can't spell a word. So for me, going to law school was probably the dumbest thing you could do. And I realized, but when I, but I, I finished it and I graduated, probably not the best in my class, uh, but very, in a very creative way. And I realized that I don't love giving advice. Uh, I want to play. I was working a lot with startup and I realized I enjoy the game. I enjoy the build. I enjoy the excitement of a great sale. So I took three months off and traveled by myself in South America. And it was the best time ever because all rules were broken. I could re-challenge every assumption I've ever made. 
about who I am and who I have to be. From that, I could emerge completely new. I then came to Israel, worked again in an advertising agency, became head of strategic planning there, realized, again, I don't love advice, even though I like creativity, was then offered a job in New York to run a small cable channel and ran that for a year and call it vanity, call it being young. But I asked for a thousand dollar raise and they said no. I'm sure that was so tough, but how did you even get the confidence to bring this up? You know, a lot of women don't even feel comfortable having conversations about getting paid more. And looking at this specific story, you were in your early 20s, you moved to New York by yourself. How did you have the confidence at that time to really have this difficult conversation? I didn't. Until today, I think I'm very good at selling what I need to sell for our business. Selling yourself and asking for a raise and selling yourself is super hard. And it's super hard for women too. I find it in every time, in every situation where I face fear, my approach is to acknowledge it. I look it in the eye and I say, I know I'm afraid, but will I let that fear dictate the income, the outcome? And then what I, I like to do, it works for me, is I actually imagine the worst possible scenario. So in the case of asking for a raise, they're going to say no. They're going to think I'm obnoxious. They're going to fire me. What's the worst that can happen? And then I ask myself if I can live with that outcome. And if the truth is that I could live with that outcome, I move without fear. It's the same for asking for a raise, but it's everything else that's a fear of yours. So when things are bad, I gave myself a budget. I call it my depression budget. I have a 24-hour depression budget. And when things are really, shit hits the fan, I allow myself to mourn what I have lost for 24 hours. That's it. But during those 24 hours, I do not look for solutions. I do not hammer myself. I go deep, deep. I watch a movie. I make no decisions for 24 hours. But after 24 hours, I have to get up and see things as they are. No more mourning. No more what I've lost, how I wish, what could have been done. And I move forward taking um, the new situation as my baseline. And that has worked for me with guys. It has worked for me with business. It has honestly worked for me with the down of the economy in 2008. And now things are changing. My dad, if you want to go back to that, registered me once to a lifeguard class. And in a lifeguard class, you learn that if you hit a whirlpool, you can't fight it. You're Mm going to drown. It's way stronger than you. The only way to win is if you go with it and then you leave from the side. To me, that's a great analogy to change. We are unable to fight what's going on in the world right now. We are unable to fight change. There are certain things we can't fight. What we can do is go with it, accept that it's happening, and find our path. And you've definitely used that also in your professional life and kind of how First Media started and really what it's become today. I would love to talk about the early days of First Media and how you decided to take a massive project like starting your own independent cable network with not having much experience in the industry. So we, we attribute, my partner and I, Guy, we attribute the success of starting Baby First to ignorance. really a bliss because we didn't know how hard it would be. We didn't know what it really takes to run a cable network. Guy used to head strategic planning for BBTO advertising, and I used to run a small cable network. So we made the assumption that, well, what's the big deal? If I could run a network, why can't we own one? Well, the network we ran, I ran had 50,000 subscribers. Mm-hmm. Ours has 60 million. But again, what we did know is that 
Oprah Winfrey took $70 million to launch her cable network, nobody would give us $70 million. So we had to find creative ways to build things parallel until we could make it. So we had to find a model that worked where revenue would come from day one. We had to find ways to lower expenses. We had to find ways to create a runway to give unique benefits to our cable operators. And I find that just like dyslexia, disability creates opportunity. So the fact that we had no experience, the fact that we were poor, uh, the fact that we would never get funded requires you to think creatively. To me as a dyslectic child who couldn't read at a time where dyslexia wasn't diagnosed, I knew I was dumb, but I had to find creative ways for other people not to find out, including lifting up my notebook in class and pretending homework was there when it wasn't, which is why I think dyslexia is a great gift because anything that happens to you in life that hurts you, obviously, is also a way to get a lesson on how to work around things and inspires your creativity. And talking about creativity, I know it's really expensive to launch a cable network. So looking at when you and Guy, who is your business partner and now husband, were building out the company, how did you think about fundraising? Because I'm sure you both had to also be creative there. I I know it sounds crazy. I I, I would never invest in me, by the way, back then. Like, I would never give two guys like us money at all. It made no sense had I known anything about cable. What we were able to do is we were able to leverage my existing relationship in cable, get an extremely initial interest. And with an extremely initial interest, going to the backers of the cable network that I ran, we were able to get half a million dollars. And that was all the money we were going to get until we could, with an option to get more if we got cable distribution signed. So there's no way you can create content for a 24-7 network and do the runway. So the only things we invested in were building a curriculum. And then what we did is we, had, we realized that when you develop content, there are two parts. There's a development part, which is generally cheaper but lengthier, and the production side, which is more expensive. So we invested only in development, buying options of content. And with that, we were able to actually get the deal done and launch a network within three months after we got it done. And we also needed content that was cost-effective. And content for babies could enjoy high repetition, but also is not Shrek kind of animation, but rather 2D animation. So you had to kind of adjust to content that would actually make sense, A, for your audience, but B, very cost effective. I will tell you one lesson I learned because I'm a foreigner in the U.S. was that it took me, we went to a lot of sales meetings, and I realized that I can't sell, that people in the room don't trust me. And the reason is that they don't trust me, maybe it's because I'm a woman, maybe it's because I'm a foreigner, Maybe it's because I'm not from the cable industry. But the truth of the matter was I could see in their posture that they don't trust me. So our first hire was a cable veteran from the industry. And his job was one, to go into the room and to speak about baseball and football, things I will never understand. I do not understand how baseball is a sport. Um, (laughs) I do not get get it. I do not get it. Whose kids are going to college where? Yeah people I don't know. And only when I could see them sink in their chairs in ease, was it time for me to open my mouth. And the transformation of the ability to sell was huge. And I think it's a really interesting thing because we often come with our own page and we're like super ready to go. And we're super excited about our product and we are not reading what is preventing us from getting the deal on the other side. 
That's actually a really good point to have the awareness of the dynamics in these sales meetings, right? You come in so prepared about going through your pitch that sometimes you can really forget about the dynamics. So I think that's a really interesting point to bring up. And actually, one thing we didn't talk about was how you and your husband started Baby First, which was the early days of First Media, when you both did not have any kids at the time. How did the idea come about for you? I used to run a premium service network, which was like HBO kind of thing. It was an, an, uh, an Israeli network. And at the time, we had friends come over for dinner and with, hey, had with them one baby, two bottles, three diapers, and 10 baby Einstein DVDs. We were kind of shocked. And we asked them, what are these? And they said with the straightest face, oh, those are baby Einsteins. They make our child smarter. And we said, what do you mean? How do you know they make your child smarter? And they said, well, it's on the box. We had a very funny evening talking about believing anything on a box. But when Guy and I investigated further, found out that Baby Einstein was the 800-pound gorilla making $800 million a year for Disney. But they were only available on DVDs that were $14 each. There was nothing on cable. And the barrier of creating these DVDs were really low. Anybody could put classical music with video of a puppy and claim it was educational. So we said, we think we could do better. We could offer full educational content with a real curriculum for less than the price of a single baby DVD. And our mm-hmm. model was kind of an HBO model where we would do a rev share. So the cable operators would actually make money they wanted instead of have to pay us. Only when we were able to show, and that was probably four years later, that our customers are nine times more loyal to the platform than the average customer, did we get really the wide distribution that made it a huge business. But transformation... We had to do it more than once. So in April 16, Bob Iker went on TV and said, owning a cable network sucks. And Disney stock dropped 40%, Viacom stock dropped 40%, and we had a cable network. So Guy and I dug deep and realized that what we owned more than anything was women's trust. We were giving them content that they wanted more of, not just as moms, but as women. And we also dug deeper, and you can see me, and it's not just a quarantine. I am no Martha Stewart. Uh, my imperfection glows. I have four kids. Two of them are twins. They want separate birthday parties with the same 14 kids with two different superheroes. And I want all the moms to think I worked on it for five days. We, with that insight that women, women trusted us, but also that I was not perfect and I was not Martha Stewart, but I did want Martha Stewart results for everything I did. We started creating content for women on social. We mastered the art and the science of what makes a video shareable which allowed us to grow from 174,000 uh, Baby First Facebook fans to 150 million, zero dollars spent in acquiring customers. And wow. Uh, that became a really uh, significantly more interesting business than even the cable network these days. I mean, that's incredible. 150 million followers with zero ad spend, all organic. That is a really, really big deal. And it's interesting to see how you guys started off as a cable network, but have really pivoted into a content generating machine that's targeting millennial women. So it's very interesting to see how the company has pivoted. So one thing I'm very curious about, and I'm sure people listening are as well, is as a founder, a woman who is managing such a massive company and also has four kids, how are you balancing both your life as an entrepreneur and as a mother? What's your secret formula? Let go of guilt and be 100% present where you are. So I do a lot of mentoring for younger women who are starting their careers. And my advice to them is do not pick a profession, pick a path. Pick a path that will allow you to control your time. Because if you can control your time, 
which means doesn't mean you have to be independent, but you're good enough at what you do, can decide what hours to work and still get paid well for it. That's the key to happiness. And I really feel that I have it all because I only do what's important. And I do it very constantly. I look at what I have in front of me, in my personal life uh, with my friends, not just my kids and my work, but with my work and with my kids, and I evaluate what elements are meaningful to me. And I do only the ones that are meaningful to me. The Pareto rule, 80-20. 20% of the stuff you do will generate 80% of the results. I do just those, and I completely accept, and I think that's the hardest part, I accept that the rest will not be done or will not be done to 100% of my liking. So if I delegate something to someone, I accept, I really accept that it's not going to be 100% the way I want it, and I don't get mad because it's not in my 20%, and that allows me to get the things that are really important to me done. Did you always have this mentality even with your first kid, or when did it come about? No, I became a lot better with my third and my fourth. I think when I had one or two, it was a lot easier. to. It was still easier for me to juggle. But when the third and the fourth came, I felt that the, I have twins. The guilt was up the sky. If I was with them, I was guilty that I wasn't working. If I was working, I was guilty that I wasn't with my kids. I was guilty that I was with this kid and not with that kid. And I said, I got to stop. And I have literally written down on every frontier of my life, what are my priorities? What, even with every single child, what is important for me? Is it important for me to pick them up from ballet? Or is it important for me to have nightly walks with them? Let's define what's important to me. You, I, you cannot define that it's really important for you to have a meaningful long summer vacation and to launch a new business on the same summer. So, but if you write your list and you look at the two and you say, no, either the summer is more important to me or the business is more important to me, then once you have written it down, it allows you to actually let go. That's how I do it. And I think I am very, very involved in my children's lives, but at the points that I wrote down to myself that are important. I think that in anything, by the way, not just in priorities, mm-hmm. writing down your goals uh, really allows you to see the opportunities. I do it with every one of my kids. I know it sounds very nerdy, but I actually have a parenting plan for each one of my children. Because I look at each one of my children, they're very different people, and I look at the skills I would like each of them to possess. Once I've written them down, the opportunities are different. By the way, the level of anxiety goes away. Do you want an example of that? Yes, please. I'm very curious. So let's just say I have two kids and I'm trying to teach them two different lessons. One, I'm trying to teach that no means no. And the other, I'm trying to teach the art of negotiation because she's not a good negotiator. Let's just, I'm making this up. This is not related to any of my kids. I go with them to Toys R Us, which no longer exists. And I know they're both going to ask for a Barbie. I am not under any pressure to buy the Barbie because I have already made the decision based on the goal, if I'm going to buy that Barbie or not. So if my goal is to teach this child no means no, no crying in the world will change because it's in their benefit that they won't leave with that Barbie. If I've decided that I'm teaching you the art of negotiation, I've already made peace with the fact that I'm paying $10 for this Barbie, right? The thing is, I am going to be patient enough to say, explain to me, why do we need this Barbie? You have 10 others in your house or why? Give me the rationale and if you can convince me, and then I would actually spend the time to build the argument with them. But I already know they're going to win. And that relieves a ton of pressure because it doesn't matter if they cry. It doesn't matter if my phone is ringing. I already came to the store with the agenda to teach a lesson. 
interesting? Yeah, it does. And how often, I mean, with you, your own goals and your kids' goals, how often are you writing these down and becoming clear with them? Is it once a year, once a quarter? I'm Jewish. And I was born on Yom Kippur, which is a Jewish atonement day. Yeah. And according to Jewish religion, you're supposed to ask forgiveness and forgive yourself in the 10 days between New Year's Eve and Yom Kippur. I take these 10 days for general reflection. And then I write those down for myself. But kids' goals change all the time. And if a child comes to you one day and says, Mom, I feel like a loser, then I take note to find ways. And I don't know what the ways would be. Life will bring the ways to show this kid that he's not a loser. And that sometimes things don't happen your way and they've got nothing to do with how hard you try because it wasn't meant to be. Now, Mm -hmm. I don't know what the lesson will be when I write down the point. But the fact that I wrote to myself, Find a way to, to show your child that she's not a loser. When things in life happen, I will grab those opportunities to teach them. Does that make sense? It just puts it in yep. the top of my head. I'm such a firm believer that if you're clear with your goals, it is so much easier to attain them. And it seems like you do that not only with your kids, but also in your own life and business. I actually read in another interview that you did that you had this sign on your wall that says to become cash flow positive, right? Oh, best thing on <laughs> Positive is the best thing on earth. Yes. And here's the thing. Investors sometimes will fool you. You say it's not important. It's all about growth. And you should listen to that to a certain extent. But I think cash flow positive gives you a certain power to do things from a way of strategic thinking versus being pressured. Uh, And pressured by your investors, pressured by your board, pressured by your customers, pressured by the fact that you don't know if you can pay your kids school next year. So That idea that if you get to cash flow positive, you have completely different control. And look at what happened to us right now with the virus, right? So all the companies that are going growth, 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 which I love growth, uh, but let's just get a ton of users. Some of them will survive and some of them won't. My advice to any company right now is to work their cash to at least last them for 18 months. I don't know how they do it, but that's what they got to do. I've spoken to a lot of VCs lately, and I think it's going to be a funding desert, especially for new companies. Yeah, it's definitely been a tough and unique year for sure. And another question I had on the topic of money is, is this something that you talk about with your kids or how do you approach the conversation around money with your children? I want to say this, first of all, maybe because it pushes my Alzheimer's away, but I really enjoy seed investing. My husband and I, we do it together, but we've done five deals this year. And in order to do five deals, you probably look at 50. So you learn something new and our criteria is, do we think it's scalable? Do we believe in the entrepreneurs and can we help? And we've done five deals. Some of them have done extremely well. But I I get our kids involved for two reasons. A, money is not a dirty word. And it's something that's really nice to have. But it's also part of life. I don't try to shield my kids from anything that's life because a kid who believes their parents are perfect or don't see the ups and downs feel pressure to be perfect themselves. And I'd like my kids to know that, you know, some days are great and there's the steal and we thought it's going to happen and we put all our work and and we flunked. And guess what? We're okay. So it's the same because you could take a math test and if you flunk that math test, it's only a math test, right? So A, I want my daughters to feel comfortable around money. I want them to know what we have. Our daughters generally know under 13 and 11, but they generally know what we have and what we don't have. They know their place in the world. Like they know what we can afford and what we can't afford. They also know that I've actually, I don't believe in allowance in generally, 
but I've started allowance solely for the purpose of explaining to them how Starbucks a day adds to something else. So the only thing that allowance is covering is your junk. So maybe it monitors sugar too. So it covers your junk. It doesn't cover anything else in life, just your junk. But I want to show you that if you don't take that Starbucks or ice cream a day, by the end of the year, there's so much you can do. So it's not so much to manage their weekly, but rather a to manage their sugar intake without me interfering. Yeah. And You're using a different angle. I love it. <laughs> I've never seen it work for any mom to talk to any daughter about sugar. I've never seen it work. Yeah. I, I mean, every friend of mine who's ever been worried about her weight, it's because something her mom said. So I don't want to do that. But if you decide not to do it because I gave you, you want to keep your money, that's a money discussion. But the idea is to teach them what it means in long term, but very involved in our business decisions. And, and we share the, the good and the bad. I don't know. That's how I was raised. And it also, it also puts us, unites us as a team. I'm saying the sacrifices we make, because there are sacrifices. You know, there are vacations we can't go to because we're working. And sometimes there are field trips that I'll miss. There are joint sacrifices. There are family sacrifices for the benefit of the family and not because for my benefit. I think that's a great point that you are having your kids involved in the decision making and getting them aware of business because it makes them feel comfortable talking about business, talking about money. And another question I'd love to get your thoughts on is clearly money is such a taboo topic, especially amongst women. I'd love to get your perspective on that and how you think that we could kind of change that narrative. I think we're raised to be polite and money is not polite and boys are raised to work it out and they can put a fist and we're raised to be passive aggressive right I see it in middle school where you say something mean and you say just kidding right or you say you know no hard feelings that's how we're raised and that's the expectation I think there's something really interesting also if you look at kindergartens study done by Mattel shows that there's a dream gap that starts at the age of five of what you dream you can become and the dream gap, gap, uh, gap starts when you look at the presidents and the scientists on the wall, and they're not women. So you don't dream that you can become one. And talking to women about money and, uh, and telling women that it's important to have money, I think changes the world. And I'll give you an interesting business example that I've seen firsthand how it changes the world. We wanted to start a business and to see, can we build a marketing machine that will uh, build a business with zero dollars in marketing, just leveraging the platform we built that reaches 71% of US women. So we did a JV with Zumba. Mm -hmm. You know Zumba, the biggest fitness brand in the world called Zumbini, which is mommy and me classes based on Zumba and baby first. We ran the campaigns only on our own platforms. My expectation was that the Zumbini instructor would be an older Zumba teacher who wants to take it down a notch. It wasn't. It was a mother of two kids, no longer do her nine to five job and wanted to make some income. And we now have 3,000 of them. And oh, wow. Tell you, yeah, we have 700 locations, 3,000 instructors teaching our Zumbini classes. And I can tell you that a woman, if, uh, from firsthand, because I hear their stories, you make $2,000 a month, just $2,000 a month, you can talk back to your husband. You can talk back to your husband, families shift, kids see a different mom, the balance of power between a man and the woman shifts. And if you look at it at scale, it can change GDPs of countries. So I think we have to empower women and girls, and all sorts of girls, but you know what, not just girls, boys too, that it's okay to want money. Money's not evil. Money's pretty good. And it's also not just about, it's what you do with the money that matters. 
having the money is good. How are you going to use the money to make the world a better place? That's where I hope girls will end up talking. I also see, by the way, philanthropy. There are a lot less women making philanthropy decisions than men, even though they're theoretically equal partners in that money. So empowering women that the money is theirs and therefore the choices are theirs. It is crucial. And it's interesting. I used to co-host dinners in LA with a friend of mine and uh, the founder of Beauty Counter came, Greg Renfrew, and she mentioned such similar things in terms of the company giving women an opportunity to make money and the confidence that they build from that, right? Whether it's a confidence of bringing things up in their relationship, confidence of just creating wealth for themselves and their family. I think it's a really, really powerful aspect. True. And I, ha- I have to tell you, there was a study I read, I can't remember where I read it, but about women in San Francisco. And it was really interested, interesting that guys in San Francisco start investing before they have their own house. And women don't. That's why over time, men accumulate more wealth than women. Women always look at, I have to work and only when I have a house, then I can think about other things while men are taking more risks. I think that's interesting. I don't know all the reasons for it. But I think it's really interesting. And I'd love to do things that will help women take a little bit of risk and invest in growing their wealth. Yes, there is so much opportunity there. And I think, you know, having these types of conversations is just the tip of the iceberg to create more awareness. But there is so much that we can do. So I'd love to close on one last question that we love to ask all of our guests. And we've talked a bit about this throughout the interview, but wealth means so much more than money. And everybody has their own definition of wealth. At this point in your life, what does wealth mean to you? I would say, A, I think there are different levels of wealthy. So (laughs) I, I don't know. But what wealth means to me is I don't fear that if, God forbid, one of my kids needed heart surgery, I would have to go raise that money. To me, it's the fact that I can take care of my family and my kids, and I don't have to choose between heart surgery and an air condition on the personal level. But on the bigger scheme of things, I think of wealth as my ability to make a difference. And it's probably not your only ability to make a difference, but to be honest, it's one of the best ones to take what you believe in and take action and make a difference in other people's lives. And it's very hard to do without money. That is true. You can make even a bigger of an impact when you do have money. So I appreciate you sharing that. And thank you, Sharon, for joining us today and talking about all things related to your family, business, money and life. We so appreciate it. I had a blast. This was fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.